Let's just put that on the table. Let's just have an honest conversation this morning. We have all been, everybody here has been affected by divorce in some fashion or another. Maybe directly, maybe indirectly. Maybe you were a kid and your parents divorced. Maybe you were like Tammy in college and her parents split up without a word. No, no wonder why, right? Uh, we've all been affected, all of us, have been affected by this topic. And the church has got to stop not talking about it. We have to quit hiding in the closet, as it were, when it comes to the issues of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We have to address it straightforwardly. We have to be sensitive about it. But we also have to be honest and say, what does the Word of God actually say? And let that then guide us straight forward. The effects of failed marriages are never limited to just the husband and the wife. Never. If you were a kid of divorced parents, you know that that's true. I don't care if you're here and you're 60, 70 years old and your parents had split. Uh, or if you're one of our young kids, you know that this has an effect on your life. You know that there's pain and scars. You know that there's turmoil internally over this topic of what happened. Even though you weren't a part of it, it had an effect on you. You bear those scars. And I'm sorry for that. I wish it wasn't true. I wish it didn't happen that way for you. It's definitely an area that I'm particularly passionate about. And I'll tell you why. I'm passionate to see marriages win. I'm passionate to see your marriages win. I'm tired of the church kind of getting beat up. I'm tired of believers uh, uh, and, and families being crumbled. I've, I've seen it. Uh, we have it in our own family, not in our marriage, but we have it in our own extended family. I'm, I want you to know that I'm coming from a position, not a position of condemnation, but rather one of compassion because I've walked through the rubble of failed marriages with other people. And I'm tired of the carnage. I'm tired of seeing the flesh and the enemy win out. And I'm going to get emotional today. And that's okay. And it's okay if you're emotional. If the Holy Spirit strikes a nerve in your life and in your heart, that's okay. Because that's just how penetratingly deep this topic is and how bad the issues are, particularly in our culture. I'm tired of seeing the enemy and the flesh have their way in marriages, particularly Christian marriages, and especially the marriages that are close to me. Statistically, statistically the divorce rate is little less in the church than on the outside. But here's one thing that we should all know about statistics. Statistics are only the collective average and reflection of the hearts. You guys get that? When it comes to these areas, and I have, a, I have a little piece out of an article that I'm going to read, but statistics are only the collective average and reflection of the hearts in this area. So listen to this study. It's been done a few years ago, 2008, by George Barna. George Barna, who directed this study. Of course, all of us know the Barna Research Group. Uh, they're known globally uh, for their statistical analysis on a variety of topics. But George Barna, who directed the study on marriage and divorce, noted that Americans have grown comfortable with divorce as a natural part of life. 
There no longer seems to be much of a stigma attached to divorce. It is now seen as an unavoidable rite of passage, the researcher indicated. Interviews with young adults suggest that they want their initial marriage to last, but are not particularly optimistic about that possibility. There's also evidence that many young people are moving towards embracing the ideal of serial marriage, in which a person gets married two or three times, seeking a different partner for each phase of their adult life. Barna, who has written more than three dozen books on the intersection between faith and culture, also stated that information about marriage, healthy relationships, and divorce does not seem to have much of an influence on people's choices. He says, quote, Government statistics and a wealth of other research data have shown that cohabitation increases the likelihood of divorce, yet cohabitating is growing in popularity. Studies showing the importance and the value of preparing for marriage seems to fall on deaf ears. America has become an experimental, experience-driven culture rather than <coughs> driven culture. Rather than learn from objective information, the Word of God, and teaching based on that information, people prefer to follow their instincts and let the chips fall where they may. And he says, given that tendency, we can expect America to retain the highest divorce rate among all developed nations of the world. That's how bad it is. And for those of us that have been affected, and again I say everybody's been affected in some way, you know that that's true. You know that that's the trend line. You know that that's where our culture is and what our culture stands for. So I don't have to necessarily beat up on the culture. The culture's pretty well, and our world has pretty much uh, made its play of where it wants to go in this topic. A little summary of this is there's no stigma in divorce. When my dad was growing up in the 30s in Summit Valley, just to the west of here, <coughs> he told me one time, he said, I only knew of one divorced couple in the whole community. One. And, and community-wide, it, it, um, it was a thing, right? It was an issue. It was a buzz. And, and, and no doubt, <laughs> knowing mankind, I'm sure there was probably a lot of gossip about it. But it was a buzz from the standpoint of what he was talking about as it stood out in stark contrast to every other family in that community. And so it was a, man, I, 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 I can't believe it type of a moment. I, I can't believe what's going on there. And there was concern and there was compassion for sure. But it stood out so much differently than everybody else that they knew. Because everybody else in the community was married. Anymore there's no stigma when it comes to divorce. There's no optimism for lifelong marriage. We've seen that in the article. Serial marriages are normalized. Cohabitation is on the rise. Marriage prep is on the decline. And subjective experience wins out over objective truth in our world. Part of, if you wonder why I'm passionate about it, and why I'm coming against it in such a heavy way, and a forceful, outspoken way, is I was inspired by one of our local businessmen, a uh, great friend of mine, been a mentor. Actually, I, uh, he was one of my little league coaches. And uh, he's somewhat of a sports legend. Uh, if you make it from Chewila to college and play sports in college, 
I classify you as a sports legend in Chihuahua because that doesn't happen too often. This guy was great. This guy was an awesome baseball player, super fast. And I asked him, I said, why did you guys end up having so, so much success in sports in the 70s? And he replied, it wasn't always that way. He said, uh, <laughs> I think about this because we're in the middle of football season. <laughs> but he said, our freshman and sophomore year, we got creamed every single game. We just got blasted all over the field. We never won a game. We got slaughtered. It was terrible. We never won a game in two years. And I said, ask him, I said, so what was the turnaround? And he replied, sooner or later you get tired of getting your teeth kicked in. And you determine that enough is enough. That mentality really has been key for me personally and for our family to say enough is enough when it comes to failed marriages. Enough is enough. Like, like <clears throat> as Christians, we must do better. Not for the sake of looking good, but for the sake of following Christ. That's why we're doing what we're doing. That's why Pete and Josh and the ladies are doing what they're doing uh, with the young people. It's like, we need some teaching on this. How do you pick out a spouse? How do you discern that? What are you looking for? Why is it different than a culture? Why is, it, why is one system different than dating or, or courtship different than dating? And all the, Why? We must answer the why questions. We must answer the why questions I shared. And we need to be accountable for that. But enough is enough. That's why this topic is particularly passionate in my mind. Particularly stands out. I shared this with my football boys the other day. They like a quote every two, three times a week. Something that we can pull down and inspire them with. We were talking about accountability. And I said this. I said, being held accountable may feel like an attack if you're not ready to acknowledge how your poor decisions impact others. It's a pretty heavy line for a bunch of teenage boys, although I think that they were nodding their heads and saying, yeah, I, I, now that we're, you know, a month of practices and two games in, I kind of get it. Like, I'm accountable to my buddy on the field of play. I'm accountable to my partner in the midst of the battlefield called football that if I don't do my job, somebody else is either going to have to pick up the slack or my quarterback gets sacked. So I'm held accountable, but that accountability, if you're not ready to accept your poor decisions, or your poor play, that accountability then weighs in on other people. So being held accountable feels like an attack if you're not willing to acknowledge your decision-making, specifically your poor decisions, and how they impact others. I started last week's sermon off with an apology and holding myself accountable for the fact that the sound might be goofy. That was, I was thinking of this quote and thinking the best way to start out is for me to step out and do that. So I come right out and ask for your forgiveness. That's what a leader does. And over the last 50 years, there's been a change in marriage in this regard maybe more than 50 years. I, I'm going to put it past that. I'm going to say maybe 100 years. There's been a slight shift when it comes to marriage, and here's what it is, and I don't know if you guys covered this in the back, 
but the church has made it harder for people to get marriage, get married, and easier for people to get unmarried, to get divorced. The church has made it harder to get married. We run them through the hoops. We run them through, and, and there's many people that are out there. Hey, if, you're, if, you're, if I'm going to marry you, you're going to do this, that, and the other. I think there should be some accountability that way. I'm not saying there isn't or shouldn't be. But we put all this pressure and, and understanding uh, upon on the front end and make it really, if you think about it, we make it harder for young people to get married we make it really easy in the church. We have made it really easy in the church to split apart. The Bible has the exact opposite viewpoint on this topic. The exact opposite view. If somebody can thumb through their Bible or j- j- jump online, somebody jump online and find uh, premarital counseling in the Bible, just a quick, quick search. I know it'll come quick. <laughs> you, you won't find you will not find this long drawn out process you won't find it I will say that it's implied and it's implied this way it's implied fathers lead your families mothers and fathers do your own due diligence in preparing your kids for life that's the implication of what the Bible says. And we can throw all kinds of verses. It, <clears throat> we don't have to do that. I don't want to get distracted that way. But for a long time, we've made it harder to get into marriage and easier to get out. And the Bible has the exact opposite viewpoint. Let's dive into our text. Now that you can hear a pin drop, and everybody's wondering where this is going to go. Let's dive into our text. Let's see what Paul has to say here in 1 Corinthians set. 7, 10 through 11. Really, let's see what the Holy Spirit inspired him to write. Two verses. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11 says this, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. So here's what God says on the matter. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Paul starts out by addressing marriages where both people are believers. So your question might be in your mind at this point, when I say that, you might say, well, what if it's different than that? And and what do we do? Come back next week. We're going to talk about that next week. But he says here where, now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. So here's what the Holy Spirit's saying for married believers Three things, very straightforward. Doesn't take a ton of interpretation and about a fifth grade understanding to see what the Holy Spirit's saying when he says don't depart. And if you have, remain single or reconcile your marriage. Don't divorce. Three bullet points. And our minds start running loopholes, scenarios, depending upon our situation and our experience. Mine does. And I'm not, I've not been married but one time. But I start thinking about the, well, uh, well, what if, what if this, what, what if that? And, and I start thinking of, you know, statements that have been told to me, well, you, you don't understand. 
You don't understand. I've been in conversations that way where I've confronted people for their, their departing and for their desire to divorce. And, and the immediate feedback is, well, you don't understand. Fair enough. Maybe I don't. But God does. The Holy Spirit that inspired Apostle Paul does. So maybe I don't. But I don't live according to Mark's subjective truth. We're called as Christ followers to live by God's objective truth. My situation is different, I've been told. Maybe so. Is it outside of the preview of God? Is it outside of God's plan, His manifold wisdom? Absolutely not. You want to know why two weeks ago I talked specifically about accountability and authority? This is the reason why. This is the reason why. Because when we start looking for loopholes, we look for an exit off from underneath God's authority and out of accountability to Him. Don't let the loophole thinking lead you into unbiblical, to an unbiblical conclusion. Rather, there's a better way to ask the question if you're going to question what to do rather than what if, what about, all of those types of loophole type statements and questions. Here's a better way to phrase the question and that's where we're really going to spend today. The better question to ask is why? The better question to ask is why? Why God? Why, why in your words does it say I should not depart? Why does it say that? Does God have an answer for you? I believe he does. Why, why God, why should, we not remain, why should we remain single if there is separation? Why is that in there? God, why? T- tell, tell me why. You know, a lot of play, things in life, we don't get the answer to the, to, to the why question. We spend a lot of time as elders talking about this very dynamic. And Dave has encouraged us at the elder board table, hey, we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we don't create our own answer to that question. But the great news in this particular topic is Jesus answers all the why questions. So we have the answers. Four or five weeks ago I said, hey, we have the answers, but I didn't give you guys what those were. Well, here we go. Another why question is this, why reconcile? Why God? Why, why do you call us to reconcile? Why is that important to you? It's a great question to ask the Lord. And then the last admonition by God there, don't divorce, we can ask that same question. Why should we not divorce? Why should we not divorce? God, what does your word say in regard to this? And why is it so important to you? Why did Jesus talk about it so much? Why is it important that we not, men, why is it important that we not divorce our wives? An observation that I have is this. When marriages are under extreme duress, extreme pressure, and things are absolutely at their worst, these questions, these why questions, they don't even make it to the table. They often don't make it to the table, I should put it that way. We have a tendency in our flesh to look for other wisdom. 
We have a tendency in our flesh to, to <clears throat> what do the experts say? Get online, do a few Google searches, read a few books. We look for a different fix other than the fix found in the Word of God. Uh, can I encourage us this way? By the way, none of these issues are, are <clears throat> none of these issues that we're talking about in today's sermon are relevant only to our time and, and place in history. Not at all. Not at all. In Jesus' day, they had the same exact issues. Uh, and these were huge social and religious debates. Huge social and religious debates about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We don't have a lot of debate about that in our culture. We have debates about defining marriage. We have debates about, you know, making sure that we have constitutional rights and spread widely and all that type of stuff. We have those types of debates. We don't have any debate in our culture anymore. Not like when my dad was a kid. These were huge social and religious debates that happened in that first century. The Jewish religious establishment was consistently trying to trap Jesus on this issue. And they were doing so to primarily see, who is this new teacher? Who is this new rabbi that's getting all of this following? Who is Jesus, fo- who, who is Jesus following? He's got all these people going with him. But who's he listening to? Who's he listening to? There was three Jewish scribes with three leading views in that day. The third one actually came after Jesus, but you'll see this progression, and this progression looks similarly, uh, eerily similar to our own culture. Uh, the first Jewish scribe that taught on this, that was very vocal about it, his name was Shammai, uh, and he said that divorce was okay only due to adultery. That was his understanding. That was his drawdown from, from the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy you know, 24. That was where he pulled that out. Probably not just Deuteronomy, but it was due only to adultery. Hillel, the second Jewish scribe in Jesus' day, uh, his opinion was is that divorce was okay for anything that offended the husband. You make bad coffee, adios, right? It's okay to laugh, it's fine, right? You don't fold my pants right and put them in the drawer properly, see ya, right? Anything, in his view, anything that offended the husband, and he looked at it from this this particular vantage, anything that offended the husband was grounds to say, you're done. Okay. Then there's the next guy, the third guy, Akibar was his name, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I'm not real great with my Middle Eastern names. He came actually after Jesus, was definitely, I believe, present in the New Testament times. And his approach was is that divorce was okay for any reason or no reason at all. Well, does that sound similar to the state of Washington? where you can get a no-fault divorce. Both people don't have to sign the paperwork if one wants to push it hard and fast enough. It's a no f- and, and that was his approach. You can have what we call as a no-fault divorce. You can have a reason or you cannot have a reason. It doesn't matter. You're free to do what you want to do. 
the, the scribes and the Pharisees that were constantly trying to trap Jesus were trying to figure out which category Jesus was in here. What was his approach? Where was he coming from? What was his, what was his thought pattern? Because his teaching was so much different than everybody else. Did he fit in with Shammai or Haliel? Was he setting the stage for Akibar, the third guy? Where, where, was, where was Jesus at on the subject? It's important to note also, not only who in that first century, uh, who in that first century were the leading voices in this matter, but also, this is something else that's in, particularly intriguing to know. It's, it's intriguing to know where Jesus taught a lot on the subject. And we just think, well, he was in Israel, right? True. <laughs> Jesus taught a lot on the east side of the Jordan River. A lot on the east side of the Jordan River. Why is that important? That region was under the control of Herod II. And it was Herod II, a non-Jew, that was John the Baptist. <clears throat> it's, uh, Herod is who John the Baptist calls to account for having an adulterous relationship with his brother Philip's wife. If you want a re reference for that, it's Luke three eighteen through 20. John the Baptist speaks up. Of course, uh, uh, we're all pretty familiar at least with the image of John the Baptist being this rough and tumble, outdoorsy type of guy that looked pretty rough. But John the Baptist stood for permanence of marriage. And he stood for the eternal laws of marriage. And standing for marriage landed John the Baptist in jail. And eventually, it got him killed. He spent some time in jail. But eventually, that whole situation, his calling this guy to account, landed John the Baptist in a situation where they took his life. Why is that so? Why does it matter? John the Baptist called this relationship that Herod was having with Herodias, his sister-in-law, unlawful. He called it unlawful. What you're doing is unlawful. The question I have for you guys to discern is what law was he talking about? You guys dig into your Bibles and find that. I, I think I have an answer. I'll refrain but I want you guys, so, so if he's calling a non-Jew to account, what law is he talking about? You guys dive in and find out. It was in that region that Jesus continued to stand for and teach about marriage issues, the east side of the Jordan. And Paul's instruction here in 1 Corinthians 7 is patterned after and consistent with all that Jesus taught. Don't separate. If you do, stay single or be reconciled and don't divorce. Three key points. But let's look at three aspects of what Jesus taught in the time that we have. If I don't get all the way through, we'll pick it back up next week right in that point. But let's look at these three aspects of what Jesus taught in the Gospels on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. First, we'll start with an explanation. First, we'll start with the explanation. And Jesus answers these why questions. We'll read a passage. We'll go back through. We'll ask some of those very same questions that I asked earlier. And we'll see how they come to the conclusions they come to and how Jesus comes to the conclusions he comes to. 
So first let's start in Mark 10, verses 1 through 12, where Jesus says, Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. So there we go. The multitudes gathered to him again, and he was accustomed, as he was accustomed, and he taught them. I'm in Mark chapter 10, verse 2 now. It says, Then the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And they were testing him. And he answered and said to them, Why did Moses command you? <clears throat> Why did, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote, this, <clears throat> he wrote you this precept. Verse 6 says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So why divorce? Why, God, should we, uh, you know, why, why, why is my marriage, you know, melting down and getting to this point? And, and what's the next step? And why do people get divorced? Because they have hard hearts. And I don't say that to condemn you if that's you. I'm just saying that that's what Jesus says about the reason why Moses permitted it why he wrote out this precept. But why stay together? Why should people stay together? Because God created marriage one flesh. God created man and woman to be one flesh, to be one unit. Why reconcile a marriage that's melted down? Because God has joined man and woman and let not man separate. It's all right there in the text. God has joined a man and a woman together that nobody should separate them. <clears throat> then, of course, at the very end, and at the end of every one of these passages, Jesus essentially has the same warning. The warning comes in verse 11, and it's a warning that gives, Jesus gives to his followers regarding this topic. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and so on. The second passage is in Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. Luke 16, 14 through 18. It's kind of a parallel passage. But it gives us a little different look at a few of the why questions. Where Jesus says in verse 14, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, and since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everybody is pressing into it. And it's easier for, <clears throat> and it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one tittle of the law to fail. And then he says the same warning verse, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Why divorce? What was Jesus getting at? What is he looking into their hearts and seeing? He's looking in and seeing this phrase in verse 15. 
You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. They were the type of people that he mentions this, for what is highly esteemed among men, what looks good to people, what looks good to our world, what looks good to our society, is an abomination in the sight of God. That's a pretty harsh statement. But why were they divorcing? For those reasons. They were looking for the esteem among men. They were justifying themselves. Then why would we say, why reconcile? Why should we reconcile a marriage that's on the rocks? Here's the reason why. Because the kingdom message is one of hope and forgiveness. That's what the kingdom message is. The kingdom message is, is one of hope and forgiveness and perseverance and love and compassion and forgiveness. And did I mention forgiveness? Right? You can't have reconciliation unless there's true forgiveness. It's impossible. You may have an understanding. You may have a, a what do we say, a mutual understanding. That's not forgiveness. It's definitely not fellowship. The old-time preacher, when I was a little kid, used to say that you could take two cats and tie their tails together and throw them over a clothesline. They'll have association, but they won't have any fellowship. Right? Boys, don't try that at home. I'm speaking from experience. The kingdom message is one of hope and forgiveness. A failure to reconcile in, <clears throat> in straightforward terms, a failure to, to, to reconcile. We are given a ministry of reconciliation, which is a message of hope to, for men and women everywhere to be reconciled with God. Those same principles apply between our personal relationships as well. And so it's kind, of a, it's kind of a saying, nope, we can't do that part of the Bible type of a statement. The kingdom message is all about reconciliation. And of course the warning again in verse 18, the same warning that we read about in Mark. There's a little summary here that I want to give so far as the reason for the divorce that was going on then and the reason for divorce that goes on now is hard-heartedness. There's a hardness that happens. These hard issues are confronted in Malachi chapter 2. This hardness, this self-justification, we see it really playing out. Malachi prophesied about this and God spoke to him about it. In fact, I just want to go there and read it. Turn left in your Bible. Not too far left. Can I just read Malachi chapter 2 or at least a part of it? There's real failure of leadership in the day that Malachi wrote this. God's confronting that. <clears throat> Most of the way through chapter 2 is, is kind of that, that whole piece. He says in verse 7, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and a people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. 
You have caused many to stumble at the law, and you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. That's a pretty straightforward text about leadership that's not doing their job. Therefore, I have also made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. This leadership at the time that they had was, was uh, <clears throat> bending all things into their advantage. God has a lot to say about that, both in church leadership and also in marital re- leadership. Verse 10 says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of foreign he has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts? And this is the second thing that you do. You cover the altar with of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with good will from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Why? What's the problem, God? What, how come you're not accepting our offering? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Important footnote there in my Bible. And your wife by covenant. But he did not make them, <clears throat> but did he not, Make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit. And why one? And here's part of God's reasoning for what he's doing in marriage. Is he seeking godly offspring? Therefore take heed to your spirit and let, not, and let <clears throat> none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. There's the big phrase that everybody likes to quote. And s- seldom people put it in context. For the Lord of God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do, do not deal treacherously. Verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, In what way have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Hard-heartedness leads to all kinds of carnage. Israel was marrying women that served foreign gods, which means they entered into idolatry. They were being treacherous with their wives. They weren't living with them in an understanding way, the way that the Bible tells us to live. They were dealing treacherously with their wives. They had abandoned the marriage covenant. And all the while, they were complaining because nothing good was happening for them. Where, where, why, what's going on, God? Why, why have you kind of abandoned us? All the while, what they were doing with their hands was trading good for evil and evil for good. A good verse to throw in if you're in the place of doing a little heart exam. Definitely an encouragement that as I've sat and talked with people who were struggling in their marriage is this short little two verses out of Ephesians chapter 4 verses 31 and 32 that says let all bitterness wrath anger clamor and evil speaking put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you
the way to reconcile a marriage that's failed is to live out these verses. Be tender-hearted. Like <clears throat> a big part of being a Christ follower is a regular heart up check, right? Where's my heart in this matter? Where's my heart towards my spouse? Where's my heart towards my kids? Where's my heart towards the people that are around me? And is it hard? Is it growing harder? Is it softening? Is it tender? Paul's admonition here, his encouragement, his command, if you want to put it that way, let all. He's not saying, hey, here's a good suggestion if you're in a bind. He's saying, like, this is the pathway out of a spot where things are about ready to come unhinged. You've got to deal with the bitterness. You need to deal with the wrath, the anger, the clamor, the evil speaking. All of those things need to be put away. I speak from a little bit of personal experience here in this way. And I tell every young couple this, is that, uh, or if they're about to get married, <clears throat> I'm pretty straightforward and blunt with them. But I essentially get around to this point, is that it won't take long for the honeymoon to be over and the grind to begin. Don't take that the wrong way. I'm just saying that any of us that have been married any length of time know that there's seasons that are a grind. That are, that are difficult. Tammy and I hit that season about, what, year four or five into our marriage. And what we discovered, what we discovered, we, we were going down a bad path, I'll put it that way. We hadn't separated, it wasn't that. But we just started knowing these patterns started to kind of crop up. And, and why was it that way? Why did she react to my silence and why did I react to her loudness? Right? Now, it's not that I can't get loud, right? Right, Josiah? Can I get loud? Did I get a little loud the other day in practice? Notice everybody else gets quiet when I get loud. So I have a big voice. That wasn't our marital problem. Our marital problem was that was leading us down this wrong path, that was leading us with, where our hearts both of our hearts were, were starting to get they're starting to get a little shell. I'd say we'd say that's true. They were starting to get a little shell towards one another, starting to get a little crispy, a little hard. And why was that true? Well, it was true this way, because she reacted to what her parents went through by going the other way. Her parents split up. Tammy's parents split up in college. They and eventually divorced. They separated while she was in college. Not a word spoke. If you didn't know them, you would think that somebody else just moved a trailer onto the same property. But there, wasn't a, there was not a harsh word spoke. In fact, I think it's honest to say that it, to this day we don't know the exact reasons why. But in her mind and in Tammy's heart, she determined, I'm never going to go that direction in our marriage. So whatever it takes, back to whatever it takes, enough is enough, she took that approach with me. My mom's sitting in the audience, and so I'm going to spill the tea a little bit here and say that uh, <clears throat> growing up, my parents were really vocal. Edit me if I'm wrong. Really vocal about their disagreements but it never went anywhere near this direction. 
There's your wisdom. Can I tell a story? I can remember being a kid. We lived in this old house, and the front door was a raised panel door, relatively paper thin. I don't even know what you guys were arguing about. It doesn't matter. But it was an argument, and my dad stormed out, and my mom was sitting at the, st- at the uh, kitchen sink, and she was washing a cast iron skillet, about a 10-incher. And out of anger, he, slammed, he stomped out and slammed the door, and as soon as that door came to a full close, that cast iron skillet went right through the raised panel. And I'm sitting there as a kid thinking, that's not good. He was fast on his feet. I'll give him that. But the reality was is that, that Tammy and I reacted. We, we saw the, 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 the pattern that our parents set out. And, and I'm not going to crucify my folks, and she's not going to crucify hers, because they're both good sets of parents. But we took the opposite approach to what we experienced when we were younger. So I just decided, hey, the way to deal with conflict is, eh, just let it blow over. Just let it pass. Just let it get by. Tomorrow's a new day. You know. It's, yeah, some people like it. Some people don't. And Tammy said, in her mind, she was of the approach, I'm not going that direction. We're going to hammer this thing out, even if it means everybody gets lumps on their head. That's right. Go team. So, at about, the four or five year, about four or five years into marriage, we came to this really hard, hard spot where we were just reacting to one another. Hey, where were we? We were both believers. We were raised in a family. We were involved in ministry. It all looked good, you know. We were the couple that drove to church and fought and then smiled when we got inside the church. You know, you guys know how it is. Hi. Oh, hey. Good morning, brother. How you doing? You know, all the while we just had this big blowout and, you know, prior to getting out of the car. We've all been there. Let's, let's be honest. It's the way it is sometimes. But the reality was is that that shell was getting thicker and we had to be confronted about that. We had to be confronted about that. We were held accountable by people that loved us for what they were seeing going on in our lives. And they took us aside and they loved on us and they cared for us. And they said, hey, hey, you've you got to address this issue, Mark. Tammy, you have to address this issue. Right? And so we did. When I talk about accountability, I'm not talking about it from a downhill perspective from me to you, and that's it. It goes both ways. It involves everybody. From the least to the greatest. And back again. We need to have those types of relationships where when somebody's going to come and say, hey, hey, uh, this doesn't work. Like we're seeing a pattern. We love you. We care for you. But this is going sideways quick. And we had those people in our lives. We had those types of people. And we need to be those types of people for one another. It'll uh, stop the train before it goes off the tracks. There had to be some reconciliation there. Even though there wasn't separation, there still needed to be some reconciliation of our marriage. We had to deal with the bitterness, the wrath, the anger, all of that. We had to get back into the category of verse 32 in Ephesians 4 where it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Because the pattern that we have 
the pattern that we have to get out of the situation that Paul's talking or to deal with the situation that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 7 is simply this. Forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgive you. That's our pattern for reconciliation. I've been forgiven by God for everything. What is it that I'm holding against somebody else? It shouldn't be. There shouldn't be anything. Christ is our pattern. Christ is our model. The word of God is our guide. In both passages, back to Luke and Mark, Jesus concludes with this warning. And he starts the warning with this word, whoever. Whoever. It's a whoever statement about divorce and marriage. We like the whoever statements that we find in John 3.16, whoever believes in me. Or we like the whoever statements that we see in John 11.26, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Those are encouraging and comforting uh, statements about whoever. It includes everybody. It includes everybody. So does the whoever statements that we read about in Mark and Luke. That whoever, <coughs> whoever statement, though, is infinitely more confronting to our ears and to our hearts. Now, I might have time to get through this one, but this one's probably the biggest one of the bunch. The second point I want to talk about is Jesus in Matthew, in two passages in Matthew, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Matthew records a phrase in there that we need to take a look at. He, Jesus also gives us some more answers that are very similar to Mark and Luke's answers for why divorce or why reconcile. Why not separate? He gives us those answers, and they're relatively similar, as I just said. Let's look at Matthew 5 real quick. I'll read and talk faster because you guys can listen faster than I can talk. Matthew 5.27 says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in her heart. Why do people divorce? Uh, because the lust causes the heart to sin. So if you're right, eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you for it's more profitable for you <clears throat> that one of your members perish than for the whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Uh, pretty heavy statements by Jesus. Why confront sin? This is kind of a extra question uh, it's better to enter heaven than with missing parts than not at all that's a pretty heavy statement that's how serious Jesus is taking this that if one of our physical parts has to go in order for our heart to be disciplined that's heavy this is a real deal like he's being serious about it of course, he also has the warning, and he adds an exception clause. Furthermore, verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Matthew 19, then he goes on with a lot more context, but I'll shrink it down only to verse, start in verse 7. 
where they said to him, the Pharisees were trapping Jesus again, or trying to anyway, trying to see who he would line up with. I think that you've got the subtle point that Jesus didn't line up with any of those three dudes, that he lined up with the Father. Matthew 19, 7 says, Then they said to him, Why did, then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? To start with, Moses did not command anybody. Moses permitted. Secondly, in verse 8, he says to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, so similar to previous passage, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. Verse 9 says, And I say to you, you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, is it better not to marry? Doesn't that similar, sound similar to 1 Corinthians 7? They were asking the same question. If it's this way, maybe it's just better not to touch a woman at all. That's what Jesus' disciples were asking Jesus decades earlier. And Jesus goes on in verse 11 and says, But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus, <clears throat> who were born thus from their mother's wombs, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. Everybody can say, ouch. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Who's not, he who is not able to accept it who is able to accept it, let him accept it. It's tough. This is a tough word from Jesus. Big time. Both passages have a common phrase, and I'm reading for the New King James Version, where it says this. There's an exception clause. When I say exception clause, the uh, lupin hole mentality within our flesh starts to spin. Where it says, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except, full, except sexual immorality. That's that ex common phrase. The problem is, is that's a real poor translation because it gives the reader a wide view, a wide view of Jesus' exception. A wide view. I started off the sermon earlier by saying we've made it hard to get into marriage and easy to get out. This is the main reason why. This is the main reason why. Now, if you jump on the Strong's, well, even before I get there, it's poor translation, in my opinion. And I think if you jump into the Strong's, you will see the right translation. If you're reading from the King James Version, you will have the uh, better understood word that's put in there. The Greek word there is not... Uh, they get sexual immorality from this Greek word. It's called pornea, which is where we get the word fornication. The King James says fornication. That's the appropriate understanding and word that's inserted in there. Fornication, obviously, and we've talked about this in previous weeks, is sexual sin before the marriage covenant, where adultery is sexual sin during the marriage covenant. Uh, and it's interesting to note that both sins are listed separately. Both sins are listed separately in 1 Corinthians 6 and in Galatians 5. The original language is specific for a reason, and Jesus was talking from family experience. He was talking from family experience. What, and you're saying, like, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Like, where was their fornication in 
Jesus' family. There wasn't, but it was perceived that there was. His parents, his mom, and I use the word stepdad. I had a guy like this last year ask me, Jesus had a stepdad? What are you you talking about? Mary and Joseph, when she became pregnant with Jesus, by the act of the Holy Spirit, Joseph was going to put Mary away, and he was going to do it privately because he was an honorable man. He could have had her stoned to death by Jewish law in the first century, for sure. But he decided because he was an honorable man, he was going to do it quietly, but he was going to put her away because of perceived fornication. Not because of adultery. They hadn't had the marriage covenant yet. They hadn't had the, the ceremony. There was no you know, a preacher standing up in front, a rabbi standing up in front. They were betrothed to be married. And in that culture and context of betrothal was still binding, but Jesus, using the word fornication, says that, hey, that's the opportunity. That's the opportunity. Language is important. It's important that we study it out. It's important that we understand it in the right context. Sexual, and when I say sexual immorality, our minds go this way when it comes to possibilities. But the original language goes this way. And it's important to note, and it's hard to get to that conclusion. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I didn't come to that conclusion easily. I didn't come to it flippantly. I come to that conclusion because of marriages that were melting down around me that affected me personally. And I was passionate to not see more marriages go that direction. So you've got to dive in and study it out. You've got to bear into the Word of God and say, all right, teach me, Lord. Teach me. What does your Word say? There's two examples in the short time that we have left, and I'll just kind of only refer to some passages and two examples here of how Jesus treats people that should give us some idea of moving forward. Both of them found in the Gospel of John. So we've hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I asked Barry before the service, is it possible to hit all four Gospels in such a heavy topic? Uh, answer is yes. <clears throat> that was his answer. The first example is in John 4. I'd encourage you to go and read it there for yourself. It's Jesus' interaction with a woman at the well. A very familiar story. A Samaritan woman was, uh, was <clears throat> out in the middle of the heat. She's out in the hottest part of the day pulling water. Now, if you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, she was out at the wrong time of the day because the ladies would go and fill their water pots early in the morning while it was cool or late in the evening when it was cool. But she chose the heat of the day. Jesus shows up. He had sent his disciples into the town to find some food. And he shows up and asks her for a drink. Very familiar story. It's a great interaction. Uh, they talk about water, the need for water. He starts to talk about spiritual matters, living water. It eventually boils down to Jesus addressing her marital situation with these encouragements. As he simply says, whoever drinks this living water will never thirst. 
So for her, it was all about the what, but for him, it was all about the who. She was saying, what, what, where's that water? How do I get it? What, what's going on here? And he kept saying, he kept talking about the who. He kept talking about himself. Like if you have a relationship with me, he kept talking about himself and the who. It's not what, it's who. They also talked about worship. So he pointed her to living water and he pointed her to true worship. True, worship, <clears throat> true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, he tells her. She was fascinated with the what of the water rather than the who. And she was fascinated with the where, where to worship up on the mountain, uh, but not how. And Jesus reverses both of those for her and says, I want you to come to me for living water. And true worshipers of God didn't exclude her. First of all, this was a whole conversation that was completely out of the norm, completely out of the context for the day. Hardly ever done, I would say. I would say close to never, ever done would a Jewish man talk to a Samaritan woman. They hated each other. There was enmity between the two groups. Samaritans, back to the Old Testament, they were half Jewish, and so the true Jews despised them for that, so on and so forth. He just puts all of that to the side and encourages her, hey, I can provide living water for you. You will never thirst again. You will never thirst relationally again. Do you want to know how to reconcile? It's found in Christ. Are you thirsty to reconcile? Keep drinking Christ. And he says not only is, is it the living water, but it's worshiping. And it's not the where. It's not the mountain. It's the how. True worshipers, true Christ followers will worship in spirit and in truth, which is a statement of authority and accountability. True worshipers will come underneath the authority of the word of God. And they will worship in spirit and in truth. And revival broke out as a result of this conversation. The result of this woman being asked for water and talking about her marital status. Revival broke out in that town. People came to uh, believe in Jesus because of her testimony. He stuck around and preached another day or so. And more people come to follow him because of those sermons, those talks. His approach was not condemning, but he didn't avoid the truth of her situation either. He redirected her into Christ. That's the approach that we take in these tough subjects of 1 Corinthians 7, is a redirect, is a redirect. I needed, we needed a redirect before the train came off the tracks. We have to come underneath the authority of the word of God. The second one is in John 8. A uh, spicier story, for sure. Woman caught in adultery. It's another familiar story where they caught this lady in, adult, in an adulterous situation, in the act of adultery. So they drag her out of the house buck naked, if we understand what's going on. And they bring her before Jesus in an effort to trap him of how he's going to deal with this marital struggle, this marital breakdown, this issue, this sin issue. And it's going to maybe reveal, like, who is he siding up with again? And he does three, three things, really, that are amazing. To give you the story in brief, he bends down and he writes in the dirt. He addresses the crowd according to Jewish law. And he addresses the woman's need for forgiveness. 
Why did he bend down and write in the dirt? For years, I've wanted to know, what did he write? What did he write? Or was he playing tic-tac-toe and just nobody knew it at the time? What, what was he writing in the dirt? It doesn't matter what he was writing in the dirt. The fact that he was writing in the dirt in the minds of the Jewish people standing around him was symbolic. Symbolic. It was symbolic because God wrote the law. They were bringing this lady to Jesus to be judged according to their law. And the law that God gave them, he wrote with his finger in the rock. So for Jesus to bend down symbolically to do the same thing was this powerful statement in their culture. A powerful statement in that day. The second thing that he does is he addresses the crowd according to Jewish law. We're familiar, at least with the basics of the story, that where Jesus says what? He who is without sin casts the first stone. Let's think logically about this. Does he mean all sin? What did he mean by sin? Did he mean that nobody could judge her because everybody was guilty of something, whatever that something was? That's not what he meant. In the Jewish culture of that day, you could not be a witness for a prosecution of a violation of Jewish law if you were guilty of the same violation couldn't be a witness so he pins it on them to say hey essentially you're being hypocritical you're guilty of the same thing you want me to condemn her to death and stone her so let you guys stone her to make an example out of her you're guilty of the same thing let him who is out without sin the sin of adultery cast the first stone that's what was understood in that day And slowly, one by one, the rocks hit the ground and the men walked away. They were all guilty. They were all guilty. They all had a heart issue. He addresses the woman and her need for forgiveness. In this way, he didn't witness her sin. He was the only one standing there that could have condemned her. And he didn't. And he didn't. He simply says this. Go and sin no more. Don't sin anymore. In other words, it's not just the one-time thing. It's leave, literally, leave your life of sin. Was what he was telling her. Leave your life of sin. Interesting to note as we close up and... Barry and Tiffany and Jonathan, Bill, if you guys want to come on up, we'll close out here. It's interesting to note as he was standing there encouraging this lady to leave her life of sin. Then a time was going to come where he was going to pay for that sin. Where his death was going to cover that sin of adultery and whenever else she had sinned. And in what other capacity? Why does Jesus treat this woman the way that he does? Such in sharp contrast to the culture? Simply because of this. Because he loved her. 
Why does he treat both of these ladies that way? He loves them. He wants them, he wants us to live under his authority, but he wants us that to be a, a, a growing relationship of love, of fellowship, of, of uh, dependency upon him. He wants people to press into him as the kingdom message so clearly was followed there in the Gospels. He wants people to press into it. That there's a whole new way of thinking, believing, and behaving. That's what really the result of surrendering to Christ is. Is you end up with a whole new way of thinking, believing, and behaving. That thinking and believing, behaving uh, happens <coughs> uh, because he's come to show us how to love him and also how to love those around us, specifically our spouses, our wives, our husbands, our families, our friends, our enemies, and that we can avoid this carnage that Paul talks about and warns against in 1 Corinthians 7. We can avoid that type of carnage and be faithful to him and to our spouses and be fruitful as we produce a godly offspring that God wants. This is why it's so important. That's why it's such a, so passionate to me. Uh, I, I, we're wide open on this. Like, if anybody would like to talk to any one of us elders, come and talk to me. I get it. I don't want to bring any kind of a condemning word in that sense, like, oh, you know, you're terrible or whatever. That's not it. We all struggle and sin in many ways, the word says. Our marriages need to reflect something different according to the word of God. That's what I believe. Not the pattern of this world, not what the world has to offer or the way the world has to offer it, but we're to, we're, we're to, we're to reflect something different. We're to reflect Jesus in our marriages. We're to put him out there in front for people to say, why are you guys different? What happened to you guys? Why were you guys able to stick it? Why were you able to come back together? I'll tell you why. It's nothing to do with me other than I was a participant. It has everything to do with what Jesus did in our marriage. And that's to look different, to act different, to believe different, to produce a different outcome. Let's worship the Lord together.